I guess the point is that, you know, um, your random weird stuff in your life, personal life, can sometimes feed into and inform you of a market opportunity. Now, what was interesting, by the way, during the pandemic was people were calling me saying, how did you predict the pandemic again? Explain that to me. And I was like, no, 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 you, you missed the point. I never predicted the pandemic. It was a it was a probability weighted model, which was able developed to demonstrate that this is like a pandemic's possible. And therefore, um, you know, like you should invest in automation. That was the voice of Asher Siddiqui, general partner at Sokna Ventures. Asher has an incredibly wide-ranging experience across different geos and different investment modes. And he's also been very generous with us with his time, insights, and experience. That's why we decided to do something a little different this time and divide this episode into two parts. Please enjoy part one of the interview with Asher Siddiqui. I am your host, Ali Zweil, and this is the Startups Arabia podcast, where you learn about the Arab startups ecosystem from the best founders, investors, and operators in the region. My guest today is Ashraf Siddiqui, general partner at Sokna Ventures, a MENA region-focused early-stage VC fund that backs exceptional teams building software and data infrastructure layer, enabling the digital transformation of industries. Asher is a tech investor with a global career spanning 25 plus years, having made over 100 investments valued at over $15 billion over the years. He started his career in the late 90s as an entrepreneur, software engineer, followed by 10 years in corporate M&A at the Salat, the regional behemoth, where he ended his career as head of M&A and corporate VC where he led over $15 billion of mergers and acquisitions and investments into corporate venture capital. After that, he switched full-time to venture capital, where he joined the global leadership team at 500 Startups, now 500 Global, in San Francisco for four years. Asher was involved in the development of several VC firms, including Sokna Ventures One of the MENA region, Lumikai Fund in India, Zain Capital in Pakistan, Race Capital in Silicon Valley, He's also a GP coach and advisor to several VC fund managers and sits on the advisory board of several VC firms, including Footprint Coalition Ventures, which has been co-founded by Robert Downey Jr., no less, Mirrors Capital, led by the former head of corporate development at Google, and the Treasury, led by the co-founders of Betterment and Acorns, two fintech unicorns, among others. Enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with interesting, very deep, very wise nuggets with Asher Siddiqui. Welcome to the Startups Arabia podcast. My guest today is Asher Siddiqui. I am very happy to uh, host uh, Asher today. The, our common connection who uh, introduced me told me he's one of the most authentic people he's ever met. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion. But not only, uh, that's not the only reason I'm excited. The, the other reason is that Asher has had such a, a wide-ranging career, uh, you know, whether in 500 Global, uh, managing it in a very tough period, 
and it is a lot with mergers and acquisitions now as a general partner uh, at Sukna Ventures and also founding startups. So it's just so much uh, area to, to cover. So I'm very excited. Thank you very much and welcome, Ashur. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Wonderful. So maybe we can start just in a few minutes. Um, if you tell us the story of how you kind of entered this wonderful world of startups and, you know, and ended up at Sukna Ventures. Well, that, that's a, unfortunately a long story, <laughs> and I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. Um, so um, I, I, I guess, you know, like no journey starts like this and you don't go from aha to, you know, to where you are today. So it has been a long journey for me. So I, I grew up, I'm, I'm from the UK, but my, my parents are from the subcontinent and I was an expat brat. So I went to 12 different schools in six different countries and um, had a very sort of, you know, dynamic uh, upbringing. Um, and I was always hustling. I, I was always finding ways to make money. I never thought that I wanted to have a job. I never aspired to become, I come from five generations of doctors, so I never aspired to be a, a doctor or an engineer or anything like that. I always wanted to be a businessman. Anyway, um, so I was always building businesses, uh, finding ways to make money. So I kind of, you know, hustling. Um, when I graduated, um, uh, you know, I decided to, uh, I was building a, uh, a business when I was at university. It was a male skincare company. This is in the mid nineties. So, uh, you know, to, to those people who maybe weren't, uh, around in the nineties, yes, men did not have skincare. Babies. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in the nineties, there was this, there was no concept of men requiring, face wash or face cream. I'm not talking about makeup or anything. I'm just talking about basics. There was no concept. So I created this, this uh, concept because I wanted to wash my face and, and then moisturize it because, you know, it's a basic thing. Um, and I was sick of using female products because it was embarrassing to buy female products and I didn't feel like they were catering to my skin. Anyway, so, and I, that was a painful experience. I mean, I learned a lot, but uh, what I realized was that the the uk environment wasn't entrepreneurial enough so i packed my bags and i moved to the us and i was also a software engineer um and i found that maybe i should do something in tech because tech could solve a lot of problems software could solve a lot of problems so i would actually work with um customers who would who would be introduced to me through my network and then they would ask me to build them a software so I would then think about, uh, you know, sort of understand their business and figure out what their business does and how it makes money and how it serves their customers. And then through that journey, then I would propose to them a software that could enhance their business, whether it's revenue expansion or, or cost reduction or both, you know, somehow improving the customer experience. And so through that, I built, you know, event registration, event management software, um, I built, um, you know, like uh, software for uh, managing uh, practices, general pra GP practices, um, or, or, you know, optimized transcription. So like all sorts of things. And, and I didn't know, I didn't want to have, um, you know, to sell the software because what were they going to do with the source code? And also, how was I going to make a living? So I would convert them into long-term contracts. And so... Um, these were, I guess, it was it was an ASP model, application service provider. This is like an old school term. 
uh, people like me know, but um, uh, you know, now you would call it SaaS, software as a service. Um, so that was from the mid nineties to uh, mid two thousands. And I was also, now I think about it, I was actually a digital nomad and I was, because I was working with customers all over in Europe, in the US, but I could live anywhere. And, you know, US was a very challenging environment to get immigration visas, whatever. So I ended up going back to the UK. I wasn't happy in the UK. So I was floating. So I, I, you know, during my travel, I ended up in Dubai. Um, and I was hanging out in Dubai, and and um, so I was a, as I said, digital nomad and, and a uh, and a remote worker, I guess. Um, and I, um, I I met this girl in Dubai, and I needed an excuse to stay here, and so I started to, and I also felt like I'd spent seven, eight years almost drifting. I'm making money, and I'm able to sustain my lifestyle. But I don't feel like it's going anywhere. I didn't raise capital. I didn't know how to raise capital for any of my products. These were not startups. These were just products that had maybe five, 10 customers. You know, it was enough to. And the server was a desktop in somebody's you know, garage and, and a shared uh, you know, uh, data center. I think a data center is an optimistic term for that. Anyway, I'm going to accelerate now. So when I met this girl, uh, from Germany, I wanted to see if this relationship would work. So I needed an excuse to stay here. So, um, and I'll, I'll give you dates. So on the 8th of Feb, um, we, uh, we started dating. And on the 8th of April, and I'm super, super lucky. Um, on the 8th of April was my first day in 2006. Um, was the first day um, as an M&A analyst in Etisalat. Uh, so M&A is mergers and acquisitions. And so I, I joined as one of the first external hires in Etislat in the M&A department um, where we were, they were just starting to build that M&A strategy to expand and, 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 and go out there. And around that time, we were bidding for, you know, for the, uh, preparing to bid for the license for Egypt, for example. And so I didn't know anything about telecoms. I didn't know anything about M&A or corporate finance. And I had Never had a job, to be honest, until, uh, until this point. But I had a bunch of transferable skills. Um, and also, I think uh, I reflect on on why they would have hired me. I think one of the reasons why they hired me was it was 2006. There was a financial services boom. Um, and what that means is that if you had a degree in philosophy or anthropology or art history, and you were vaguely interested in getting into finance, you would get a job in London or New York, and if you weren't good enough, Hong Kong or Singapore. But Dubai or Middle East didn't exist. And the headquarters of Etisat were in Abu Dhabi, which, you know, in those days when I would tell people I, I work for Etisat in Abu Dhabi, they'd be like, Abu where? Um, and, and this is, you know, a true story from people who now know Abu Dhabi very, very well, very but those same yeah. people, um, you know, did not know. So I guess the point was that Etisat were thinking, well, let's just hire people and retrain them. And I, I wasn't a spring chicken. I was 30 years old when I when I joined as an analyst. So I also took a haircut and I, you know, went down and I learned. But I asked a bunch of dumb questions uh, and they invested in me. They 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 took me through lo- lots of training programs um, like INSEAD, uh, HBS, um, and also like, you know, doing like with the Lehman and McKinsey and uh, with Citi, uh, these analyst or associate programs or valuation programs, specific programs. So I, I learned on the job. And it was, and I was thrown in the deep end. So, you know, long story short, uh, 2006, I joined. Uh, three years later, 
I was co-head of m and I was running m and in Asia and, uh, and, and sort of investment operations in Asia. And, you know, by 2011, I was global head of M&A. Um, and I never expected, uh, you know, to be at, in, in this sort of situation. Um, and I started building the sort of the corporate venture capital platform because by this time I've learned about M&A. But, you know, if you remember, the reason why I took this job in the first place was because I wanted to see if this girl relationship would work. Yeah, I'm waiting to see how that ends. Well, it, it, it ended, I mean, it started very well and it's still going, thank God. Um, but yeah, so 2007, uh, we got married and, uh, you know, the, and then the next year, uh, you know, we, uh, we started our family. And so, um, yeah, so like by this time, you know, we had a daughter and, you know, like that, that relationship, that, that investment in it just like worked out. So then I was like, okay, I, I, I did what I was supposed to do. Now I want to do what I want to do. And so I wanted to get into, and I'd been exposed to um, venture. By the way, I, was, I had actually been exposed to venture earlier as well. So I actually ran, I, never, I have not studied at MIT, but I actually ran one of the first MIT 50K business plan competitions uh, here in 2005 in Abu Dhabi. Uh, so I, I was very excited about this whole venture space. And uh, my idea was I'll learn about investing through the investment department, uh, or, or you know, CEO uh, at, at International, uh, you know, so I'd learn from 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 that, and I did, and so I started building the corporate venture capital platform, uh, thinking that you know this is a way. So I wanted to give back because Etisalat had invested in me, and I think they had a great return. But at the same time, I, I mean, I love this company. They they gave me I was nobody, and they gave me this opportunity, and I, I, I led fifteen billion dollars worth of M and A. I, I did some really cool things and I was constantly learning. It was just so much fun, but I did like tech. And so I started the corporate VC platform, started to look to invest in venture capital funds in the Bay Area, struggled to do that for multiple reasons. Um, one of them being that we were a corporate and corporate LPs weren't particularly uh, optimal LPs for you know some of the most established funds. And we were also a telecom operator and telecom operators tended to um, perceive, you know, the technology digital disruption as a true, like a, you know, a disruption to their core business. And, and so because of that mindset, they were wary uh, of us. And of course, we were a Middle East um, based. And in those days, it wasn't so, uh, you know, common to, to, to raise capital from the Middle East. So, so there, there was many reasons. Um, but, you know, I, I did get into that journey, you know, invested in the region. Uh, that's when I met Tariq. Um, and, and, you know, we tried to uh, look at his fund and, and a bunch of other funds. We ended up did, uh, investing in Imina. And uh, through Imina, we, you know, we deployed, you know, $50 million into the region. And that was, it was great. Um, we learned a lot. Um, and 2016 is when I realized that maybe corporate venture was not for me. So um, I left. I moved back to the Bay Area. And I started commuting. Um, I joined 500 Startups uh, and, you know, sort of co-led the firm uh, for a couple of years. Uh, and then 2019, my wife uh, did not want to move to the Bay Area. So I was tired of uh, the commute. And also I felt like I wanted to go in a different direction to where uh, some of my colleagues at 500 were going. So I, I left. And when I left, a lot of the other uh, investors were also leaving. 
Um, and I started to work with them on helping them build their own institutional uh, venture capital firms. So I've been involved. I've been lucky and privileged to be involved in some of the top firms in, 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 in globally in, um, in, in many different sort of, uh, you know, verticals. Yep. And uh, yeah, around that time, I, uh, you know, was introduced to um, uh, Faris, uh, who's the founder of um, uh, Sukna Ventures, and uh, through, a, through a mutual friend of ours. And I started working with Faris. And, you know, I, I come from a B2B uh, software background. And, you know, we'd seen a lot of consumer opportunities in the region, but we hadn't seen enough B2B uh, opportunities. And one of the cool things that happened through during the pandemic was... Um, we started to see, you know, people sitting at homes, decision makers sitting at home, and and they're they're actually seeing that actually they need technology to to run their businesses, um, and so all of a sudden they were much more open to, um, you know, buying software over subscription, and so that created this sort of opportunity, almost like the digital transformation of uh, uh, across industries in the region, and that was exciting. It's boring. It's not seen, but it touches everybody, um, and that's kind of what I like. So Faris and I started working on this, and then we thought mm, we need somebody smarter. So we we went to uh, my old friend Walid Al Bala, and we roped him in. So he left a five hundred million dollar fund that he co-founded with uh, AIT, and uh, he he joined us to launch a fifty million dollar fund. So and here we are. Um, wow. Uh, so that was a long-winded story. I'm sorry, so I, exciting. <laughs> too long there. No, no, it wasn't. I mean, uh, it's just uh, the fact of uh, how much you know you you you've you've seen and how much you've experienced, and that's what it's what this podcast is about. So, I mean, uh, I'm going to dive into some of the details of some of the stories because uh, all the stuff you've gone through, there there are definitely things we can learn from that. Uh, but there's something interesting I noticed in your bio, which is that you're start, uh, on LinkedIn, uh, which is that you're starting it not with all these things that you're talking about, but with the fact that you've been through major macroeconomic disruptive events. You know, the Asian financial crisis in 97, dot-com bust in 2000, 9-11 in 2001, financial crisis in 08, covid I mean, it was a, an interesting way to start a bio. So I wanted to ask you about what is that about? Okay, th- thank you. So, <laughs> yeah, so I've never been asked that, but um, so that was a reaction to um, you know what was going on in twenty twenty one twenty two. There was just like this whole boom going on, and and I'd seen this story so many times. I'd seen this boom bust, boom bust, and. And I remember, you know, meeting, I, I remember being one of those people thinking this, the music will never stop in, uh, in the nineties and the early two thousands. And then it did. And then I sort of experienced this multiple times. And I, I guess what I was trying to do was, um, I was considered the naysayer or the grim reaper, um, uh, you know, um, or, or the, the kill, the buzzkill, uh, yeah. kind of guy. Um, you know, because I, I would talk to founders and founders would be like, you know, we're raising this much money at this valuation. And I'm like, 
you know, what are you doing? Like, you, A, you don't need that much money. B, you're overvaluing yourself. How do you think you're going to grow yourself into that valuation? It's like, well, right now the markets are this. And I'm like, that's not how you get valued. You look at the last 10 years. You look at the last 15 years. This boom and bust cycles. And then you look at the, you know, sort of where the averages are. And that's what how you value yourself. So don't. And so I guess that was an attempt by me to have smart founders um, who would take the time, like you, to actually read my bio and actually read it and reflect on it, to then come to me prepared because I'm not going to be interested in talking to super, super sexy startups run by super sexy founders who are super cool and they're able to raise like a lot of money and do big things. That's just not me. I'm interested in people who are solving real problems. And uh, so that that's one of the things. And the other thing is... Um, you learn a lot, right? Venture is a very long game. And you have to understand that, you know, like as a fund manager, you know, you're raising a fund and you're investing this fund over a three to five year period. But the gestation period of these, this portfolio is 10 to 12 years, if not more sometimes, depending on what stage and whatever. And we're pre-seed seed. So we're like, we're likely to be 10 to 12 years. And so that is what you're doing is you're investing today and you have to look at the, I'll take a longer uh, view. So today the market is bad. That's actually a great time to be investing in, uh, from my perspective. And so when when I when I meet LPs, so in, uh, people who are investing in my fund, or when I meet founders who are thinking this is not a great time to be starting company valuations alone, I mean, I'm I'm saying, are you kidding? Like, this is the best time to invest in a fund. This is the best time to be backing founders that are building something because it's cheaper to build. It's cheaper to hire. It's you have less competition. Um, most of the corporates are actually cutting costs, so you have less competition from the big boys, and you have the space to build and think and 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 hire the best people, and and so build. And valuation doesn't matter because valuation, you know, like you will grow your company and you will grow the value of your business, but solve real problems. So the whole the whole idea there was to help people understand that, you know, you have to put your life into context and you have to put this into context of everything else. And you learn a lot from, uh, you know, you learn more from challenging environments than you do from, uh, you know, when you think uh, interest rates are going to be zero for forever. Yeah, you learn and you learn it quicker as well. Because, you know, you don't have that much leeway. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, I can't agree with you more in everything you've said. Um, um, and now I get it, <laughs> why you put that in the bio. Um, okay, going back to Sukna Ventures, and you spoke about digital transformation in the B2B uh, area. So just to understand the, the thesis more, is it purely B2B? Because I, I saw a very diversified portfolio when I, when I you know, uh, checked out, uh, including like five funds, I think, that you're invested in. So it was, uh, is, is that, I mean, is, the, is that the only definition of digital transformation, which is like the headline for Sukna Ventures? No, so I, I should clarify the, the structure of uh, Sukna. So Sukna is, is, is two separate uh, things. So there is a, a, a holding uh, entity that has uh, no real, um, like no specific sort of thesis. Uh, it's a global investing vehicle. And through that vehicle, 
we invest into funds all over the world, and that provides us with deal flow. Um, and then we invest in deal flow globally. That uh, piece is run by Marvin Liao. Marvin is my old uh, buddy from 500 Startups. So Marvin actually built the accelerator, the flagship accelerator program for 500 Startups in San Francisco. He actually opened the office in San Francisco and built the, that flagship accelerator. So he did like, I don't know, 450 investments uh, during his time at 500. Um, so he runs that vehicle. And that is part of the reason why we find it uh, quite challenging because I get a lot of deal flow, which is sort of Marvin deal flow. It's like global and it's a lot of different things. It's just Marvin has, Marvin's in so many deals in so many different areas that he has good knowledge and insight about so many different things from B2B SaaS to, you know, e-commerce to, um, uh, to, to Web3 to like, you know, to gaming. And so that's what you will find uh, sort of that broad. And then we have a fund, which is the uh, Sukhna Ventures One. Uh, that fund is a regional MENA-focused fund. And there we're investing in sort of the digital transformation uh, of industries. Uh, but specifically, if you want me to dig a little bit deeper into into what I'm looking at, so I we don't necessarily invest in any B two B SaaS company or B two B company. What we invest in are companies that are uh, building a product that is hard to build, um, but once you build it, it will scale and it will be defensible. So, like I use the term software infrastructure. Um, so what, what we're investing in is companies that are building the infrastructure layer using software because the future is, you know, software. Everything is software. So, um, uh, and, and you need the hardware for that, of course, and you need the real world for that, yes. But what we're looking at is companies that are building the software infrastructure layer. So, for example, we don't invest in payment companies because the barriers to entry for payment companies are low and and competition is high and it's very fragmented. But what we invest in is, for example, we invested in a company uh, recently, MoneyHash. Uh, we haven't announced this uh, yet, but um, uh, it's a, it's a infrastructure layer uh, solution because what it's doing is, so there's so many different companies out there, payment companies out there, payment uh, processors, payment providers, and it's so fragmented. and and this, you know, like, how do you, as somebody who needs to manage payments as a, as a company, how do you manage that? And so what they've done is they've actually built this infrastructure, um, software infrastructure to enable you to basically plug and play without having to do any of the development that you need to do to be able to manage payments across borders. Um, and, and another one, for example, um, a subscription management company. So we, uh, we, we're, we invested in subspace, for example. Uh, again, we haven't announced it, but we've been very active. We, we've done seven deals in the last seven months. So um, subspace, again, is like subscription infrastructure uh, layer. So we, we like these because they're solving really good problems. They're SaaS businesses, but they're also cyclically defensive in the sense that, um, you know, when you find these consumer, um, consumer companies can, can create huge amounts of value and, and no doubt about that but it's just not part of my DNA, right? So I, I don't understand those businesses. But what I do understand is when you have these ups and downs in cy and cycles across, uh, what you find is that these types of businesses, they are, I, I remember this from when I was a founder, um, 
people lost their jobs in my customer's uh, company and they bought more licenses because they needed fewer people to do more. And so that's the type of business I like, which grow when the economy is growing, but also grow when the economy is not. And that's what I call cyclically defensive. Now, so, I mean, that's a lot to unpack, but that's, 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 that's the core. Exactly. Cool. Um, I think that gives more clarity there. Uh, going to another side of the, I mean, there's always this running debate in venture when you're deciding to invest in a startup, what's more important, the founding team or the market? And, you know, where do you stand on that debate and how, how do you approach it? Man, that is a, a great question um, and a hard one to answer because, um, so, okay, so I, there's three uh, lens, right? So there's the product, there's product. the team, yeah. the product, and the market. And unfortunately, and this is why venture is hard. Unfortunately, I need to back the right team that is building an amazing product that is hard to build and easy to scale in a market that is big and or is growing and and the timing is right for that market. So there are so many. So unfortunately, you know, I, I'd love to tell you the one or two, but the reality is you kind of need, you know, like straight A's. Uh, well, that is the premise of venture. The premise of venture is, so, you know, loss ratios are high. Most startups fail. And so when you as a venture investor are investing in a startup, you need to have the conviction and the belief. And, and you may be wrong. And most of the time, sadly, you are wrong. But, or I am wrong uh, most of the time. But, um, you know, you, I have conviction and belief that this will be a big company. It's going to be a big company that is going to serve a lot of customers. And I have that conviction every single time. And so in order to have that conviction every single time, I need to know that I'm backing the right founders, building the best product, serving a market in a market that's growing. Um, and I need to have all of that. And the timing is right. Uh, and I've made the mistake of, of doing the first three and mistiming the opportunity. Yeah, timing. Yeah. I, 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 but, I mean, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because, I mean, you, what's, you can have the market right, but then the founding team isn't perfect. Or, but there are people who say, like, you know, Mark Andreessen, you know, if, if you have the, the wrong founding team in the right market, you know, market wins, you know, he, he always says right, yeah. the, the strongest team. So he's, yeah. he's kind of very pro market, uh, as long as, of course, you know, product market fit is there. Uh, so I, I have a, I, I have a different view. Sorry, I, did you uh, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. No. So, uh, um, so, you know, it's, it's in my mind, um, you can get timing wrong. You can get market wrong. In, in places, but you know what's interesting? If you back the right, so, okay, so let me, um, you know how you've got these pitch deck with, you know, like uh, uh, like an elevator pitch, and then you've got the, uh, you know, like the product, the problem, the solution, the product, the traction, the marketing plan, the go-to-market, you know, like how much you're raising, da-da-da, and the team. So all of those are filters. All of those are filters, whether 
to figure out whether, you know, trying to understand product, market, timing, all of that stuff. But actually, that is just a filter. And the filter is now to spend time with the founders to see whether these are the people that we want to back. So if I weight my decision-making process, I would say, depending on what stage you're investing in, and I think that that is where I think this advice is generic statements aren't helpful unless you qualify it with stages. So I'm a pre-seed seed investor. So at pre-seed seed, I would say 60 to 70% of the weight of the investment is actually my belief in the founder and the founders and my perceived ability of the founder's ability to solve problems. And if I do that, yes, I fine. I might get the timing wrong. I might get the market wrong. But if I get the founder right, and that is a unicorn founder, I hate that term, but you know, if I that is like the diamond in the in the rough, then they will figure it out, and they will they will pivot their way to a a market that is right, and they will build an iconic company. And that is true for if you unpack so many companies that have you know gotten to that level, they never started in a big market, you know, and so. My view is if you've backed the right team, then, you know, obviously as you grow, like at series A, for example, I think it's maybe less, it's like 50, 50, maybe, or 60, 40, the other way around, because now you've got a lot of traction. Now it's about how, what kind of team can you build, you know, and, and then the further, the later you go, the less the founders are, um, you know, like carry the weight that, that they do at the early stage. So. Um, I do think that the founder is, is, is critical in my mind. Um, and, you know, there's many different reasons for that. Ventures are people business. Uh, we invest in people. Um, and that is what we're really investing in. And we need to invest in people that we believe in and people that we can stand the sight of, <laughs> that people who need our help, that we, are, we want to pick up the phone and we'll be available to them rather than, oh, no, I don't want to talk to this person. Yeah. You know, that's not what you want from your investor. And that's not what you want when you're investing in, 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 a, in a company. Because you want, like, anytime they're there, I'm like a puppy, like, waiting for them to, like, call me, message me. Yes, finally, I'm helpful. I'm, 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 I'm helpful to this person because I admire them, you know. So that's what you want. That's the relationship you want. And so that's where I think a lot of the, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm sort of like, you know, it's sort of making a meal of this, but like the whole idea is founders, founders, founders. Now, obviously, and the reason why we ask a lot of questions around, you know, how they think about the market, you know, you may get it wrong. You may have a belief and that's okay. We want to understand how do you get to that belief? Um, what are the logic? Uh, logical steps that you've taken to get the data to, you know, to come to that belief, for example. So we're, what we're trying to figure out is how do you think? Do you do you think on your feet? Can you solve problems? Can you are you open? Are you rigid? Are you coachable or not? And so there's so many things. And then then it's a relationship. And then just one thing I'll, I'll say, and this may sound terrible, but, um, you know, statistically, repeat founders now this is not always true of course because that's the problem with ventures like nothing is there's no such thing as a golden rule there is no rule yep everything i said and everything that you uh, quoted from uh, the other investor is right and wrong at the same time because there are no rules and so but statistically you find that repeat founders tend to have higher outcomes than 
first-time founders. Now, this is a statistical thing, and the thing about statistics is that outliers exist, and, you know, like 60%, of, for example, I've heard in, in some cases, like 60% of, of um, unicorns, or, you know, are repeat founders. And so when you understand that, then you understand that, okay, you know, this could be a home run on day one, or maybe this person's going to transfer to another team, and then they're going to be, um, you know, like the, <laughs> uh, you know, a player of all time or whatever. And so, like, you're building a relationship. And, and of course, you have a belief that, uh, you know, so this is not charity. We have a belief that you're going to make it this time around. But if you don't, then depending on how we were, if I was, uh, like, helpful, and, and hopefully this person will come back to me and say, I'm building this now, and this is what I've learned, and this is what I want to do, and I'd like to have you on board. Right. Uh, it shows it's it's a relationship business and a long term one definitely. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, at the early stage, founder kind of first for you, it seems. Um, and market is important, of course. But but how does one measure market or, or or really get a handle on a market when something is very new and and you never know? You know, you have there's so many examples. You know, Twitch when it started as a uh yeah. or even um or carta even when they started you know cap tables who's gonna how is this gonna be a multi-billion dollar company and now they're doing so many other things and they've been able to expand etc yeah. etc et um so i mean how do you get a handle on market and, and potential tam with a new idea that hasn't been done before and and that that's not easy right and this is why again venture is hard uh, for investors and for founders because what are we in the business of? We're in the business. Founders are in the business of building the future. Investors are in the business of backing founders that are building the future. And so the problem with that is that you need to have a pretty good imagination, but you also need to have a pretty good um, sense of questioning everything and questioning your own uh, biases and 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 questioning your own sort of beliefs and so and limits yeah the limits and so like it it's it's hard you know like it, it is actually hard because what you have to do is but there are ways for you to sort of think about this so for example I'll, I'll answer this in a, in a different way so I was at a panel so I'm not the smartest you know brightest bulb and so but I was at this at this panel uh, where there's all these Nobel laureates and like these super smart people and and I was on this panel and I was like, oh, man, like this is like I do not belong here. And the question that they asked was, what are you going to and they thankfully they gave us a heads up. So um, the question was, you know, what what should I be investing in in 100 years? Like, you know, like uh, what 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 should you be investing in that's going to be iconic in 100 years? And, you know, you can extrapolate that. Um, so I, I did that and I, I went through the whole mental sort of exercise. I went through the exercise of figuring out, uh, and that's kind of how you figure out opportunities. So let me, let me give you an example. So, um, at the time, this was a sort of a climate kind of a linked, uh, event. So, um, what I thought about was, okay, um, a hundred years from now, if we look at all the data, uh, that exists and we think about you know, what is happening to our, our environment, um, you know, the world is getting more and more inhospitable. And so 
um, you need to invest in in things to oh, there's two options, right? So one, you can leave and go to Mars, or or you can actually slow down the um, uh, the, the the rate of of, uh, of change uh, that's happening. Um, because I'm a cynical person, I don't believe in humanity's ability to sort of control themselves, myself included. Um, so, um, you know, it's what I thought was, well, maybe I should invest in space tech. So I started looking at into space tech. And the reason I looked at space tech was because you are potentially, so there's people who are motivated to invest in Mars or going to Mars. And in the process of going to the moon or Mars or wherever, um, you are figuring out how to sustain life there, your life there, and and your you know what you eat and, and and how you breathe and whatever and all of that technology, all that money that's being invested there, all that technology that all that IP that's being created is actually in a hundred years going to be very very useful for humanity on Earth because. Earth is now closer to the environment, uh, you know, in a hospitable environment. So mm. you can extrapolate that. So now, obviously, you need data for all of these things. And I, I, I've sort of, this is at a 50,000 feet view. But my point is, you need data and you need to have a view. And yes, a very active imagination. But you need to have all of those things. I, I'll give you another example, if I may, uh, if, if you have time. Um, so in, um, and again, you know, like, there's so much. So I think what people don't realize is that, um, you know, your job is not everything. Your life is everything. So, you know, like my my perspective is just like everyone, like your perspective and everyone else's perspective is unique. Why is it unique? It's unique because we've all had unique circumstances that led to our birth. We have all had unique, relatively unique uh, experiences as we were growing up. And, and everyone we've met and, and has sort of like impacted us in, in, in many different ways. So we all have this unique perspective. And so like, and that is a life perspective that we have. And, and so I, when, you, when you start to look at that, then you start to think there's, there's, there's ways for you to benefit from your personal experiences. So for example, I'm, I'm British and my wife is German. And so my daughters have both passports. And, and so we're, I guess we're, you know, privileged citizens of the world. And we lived in Dubai. And um, I was always thinking where, because of climate change and, and uh, all of this, I was thinking, you know, like where my children will be when they're teenagers is where they're likely to build their families. And so what that means is that if I don't make the smart choices today, I am basically putting a nail in the coffin of my future offspring that I will never meet in a hundred years or whatever. So I need to think about that. And maybe that's dumb for me to do. And, you know, but that's just the way I am. So I started thinking about this in like 16, 17 and, and, uh, uh, and I started looking at different parts of the world where uh, we could move to. And, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an exercise that I was doing. It's kind of nerdy. It's kind of stupid, but I was doing it. So I was looking at, you know, Zurich and this and that. And I went to conferences as well. So I would go to conferences. I'd be like, oh, this is cool. So I, I showed up in Helsinki uh, in, in Finland. And then I went to this uh, this really cool event in the Laplands called the Knights of Slush, which is an event that happens before Slush. So I'm not a party person. So I went to the Knights of Slush and then I got the hell out of there for Slush. But I, there's nothing wrong with Slush. It's just I'm, I'm old <laughs> and I, I don't like the party. Uh, so... Um, 
so I went to this uh, in the Laplands and and I started thinking, okay, maybe I should consider this place because this place will be like, you know, like Portugal in, in uh, 20, 30 years, maybe, you know, like nice temperature. But then I started doing research and I found that there were these anthrax outbreaks, uh, uh, outbreaks of anthrax um, uh, because of the permafrost thawing. And so I thought, okay, that's just the first layer of the permafrost. What else is in there? that we have not been exposed to. Then I was like, oh no, this is a pretty scary place to be, the Northern Hemisphere, because there's all this stuff and we're like first. But then I was like, okay, so how do I protect myself? How do I avoid, I'm sorry, I know this is paranoid, but this is just like how the rabbit hole goes, right? So, or how my thinking goes. So so I started thinking, okay, so how how will I protect my family? So I then started looking at, okay, what are the, uh, how do you get there? So trains and and, and planes uh, and automobiles from, from uh, uh, Levy or Kittila uh, to, to Helsinki. And then from Helsinki, okay, how, I mean, this is like, you know, 5 million people or whatever in a big country, isolated, right? Within 35 days, we had a regional epidemic. And within 60 days, we had a global pandemic, uh, according to my model. And this model, I sort of like wrapped up in like 2018. And, and I started talking. And so I was like, okay, this is interesting. So so volatility is increasing in our environment. Our environments are becoming more and more volatile and unpredictable. And you could, if you can have a pandemic, global pandemic from um, from Kittila in the Laplands, where people go for, you know, to meet Santa Claus, um, then, I mean, that's kind of scary, right? So now, of course, healthy paranoia, and I'm totally in la-la land, right? And most of my friends, I can tell you, and most of the investors that I met thought I was a little bit loopy, right? So they used to think I was a rational, intelligent human being. And then they were like, this guy is not uh, is a nut job. Um, I could see it. And I mean, they never said it to me. But you know, when you talk to somebody and you look in their eyes, and they're reevaluating this person, and they're like, ne- never invite this person to your home, because God knows what they will do. <laughs> kind of. Uh, anyway, so um, so I, I did this, and so what I thought was, okay, that's interesting. So I'm, I still haven't solved my problem for where do we move to, but then I was like, this is a business opportunity because I'm thinking, but you know, we have supply chains, we have manufacturing, all of these things need to run, and if there's pandemics and, and pandemics are so easy, and there's so much data out there, and there's so much, so many people talking about it. I'm not the smartest bulb, but again, you know, like the dumb person like me can figure this out. Anybody can figure this out. Um, based on data. And so my view was, how do you run the world? How do you run business in an environment like that? What do you need? You need automation and um, you're flying blind. What do you need when you're flying blind? If you're a captain of a ship in a fog, what do you need? You need a radar, you need a sonar, you need data. And so I developed this thesis for artificial intelligence or machine learning driven products that could provide insights to companies uh, across industries, which is kind of like what led to like, I guess my thesis at Sukhna Ventures uh, is kind of like, um, you know, a a similar vein uh, to to that. And so I guess the point is that, you know, um, your random weird stuff in your life, personal life can sometimes feed into and inform you of a market opportunity. Now, what was interesting, by the way, during the pandemic was people were calling me saying, how did you predict the pandemic again? Explain that to me. And I was like, no, 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 you, you missed the point. I never predicted the pandemic. It was a it was a probability weighted model, which was able developed to demonstrate 
that this is like a pandemic's possible and therefore um, you know like you should invest in automation you and, should be and- prepared yeah it's the power of imagination again you know uh, just imagining what the world could look like and 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 then working back from that so what would we need to start building now uh, and so, so just to like uh, to, to move it to the next level so yeah, imagination is important and so the point that I was making was we're building the future. Now, the thing is, there are many futures that you could build because there's this infinite possibilities. Why it's important for us to invest in the founders um, and which are the founders that are successful? Founders that can tell a story. If you are a good storyteller, maybe on a probability way to basis, there's another alternative future that is more likely. But if you're a good storyteller, you can create this future and so i guess just to 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 go back to like you know like imagination it's like how do you predict the future where you can't but you can on a probability basis figure out the potential futures and then you back good storytellers who can not only good tell a good story to you uh but also to their customers and you know they are someone who and and that is what is like beautiful about humans right humanity i mean like the reason why civilization was, was created was because of our ability to tell stories and 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 language is so important and, and telling stories is so important and so like it's funny like we we may have evolved but we're still essentially cavemen uh, telling stories yeah in, it's you know. uh, part of what makes us special yeah yeah and it's interesting i mean uh, wh- when you say that because when i read a story that's written by generative a- ai for example somehow it just doesn't connect like a story that's been written by human. I mean, even if you tell them, like, I don't know, write uh, a short story about loss in the style of Toni Morrison, I mean, it will generate something, yeah. but it just, it's not like reading Toni Morrison. It's just very, it's different yeah. in a way. So it's, it is kind of, at least maybe I am hoping that it's part of what makes us different. Uh, so, I mean, I would say like, you know, I, I think about this as well. And um, I wonder, you know, are we not satisfied because we know who created it uh, or what created it? And, and you know, like, because I'm constantly questioning my biases um, because the reality is, you know, um, I mean, I, I agree. There is this, un- so one of the things that makes humans special um, is the unpredictable nature of us. And, and I think that that unpredictability or volatility that we have inherent in us and the volatility that we create around us is what makes us interesting. And so that, that's why, like, for example, when I talk to my children today, I tell them, go creative. Exactly. You know, like, not yeah. software engineering, whatever, you know, develop those skills because, um, creativity i mean there are elements of creativity that you can replicate but inherently you know you can only replicate what is today but humans aren't replicating today humans are creating the future if that makes sense and yeah yeah. and Uh, i will at some point be able to do that as well but like not in my lifetime i don't think so but what do i know uh but but this is kind of an interesting maybe study to ask someone to do you know have bl- people blind uh, test or blind read uh, stuff created by humans and by 
AI in the style of the humans and and see if they can uh, figure out what's what. Uh, because yeah. yeah, we might be biased. Maybe knowing that this is created by AI makes us biased. So I mean, going back to the world of investing uh, and Sokno Ventures specifically, I mean, you guys have been going at a very high rate. If if you're making if you've made seven investments seven months, that's uh, uh, you know, especially looking at the size of the fund, that's that's pretty significant pace. Uh, so what's the decision-making process? How do you make decisions? So um, uh, so first of all, all three of us, um, and, and Marvin, by the way, is also an independent uh, investment committee member, uh, you know, because so we want to have as many perspectives around the investment committee. Uh, so there's four of us on the IC, and, and the three GPs were basically the ones who, who run uh, the fund. How it works is so I live in Dubai, I work in Dubai, and I'm looking at uh, deal flow. So like I do things differently. We all do things differently. Um, I'm more network driven. So I tend not to speak at conferences or do things like that. I, I prefer to meet with people and meet with people that are introduced to me through my network because they're filtered. And most of my network know that I can be a prickly pair sometimes. So um, I'm, I'm typically, you know, leveraging my network to, to bring deal flow to me. And so that that's kind of like my, I guess, silent uh, way way of, um, of, of getting deal flow. Um, I help people, um, you know, I help founders all the time. So every time I meet or any of my GPs, so we, we have this um, ethos, which is we, we help the community, we help founders, no transaction, uh, sort of no nothing expect no expectations. So it's a non-transactional relationship where we will sit with founders, we will help founders, and we will tell them what we're thinking, and we will tell them what we really believe and what we really think about them. Which is why we we said no, or we were, uh, you know, like um, uh, we walked away, or we the founders didn't come back to us because we didn't agree on value or valuation or or product strategy or or whatever. And that, that's fine. But we find we, we do that. And w- what we find is that founders will talk to other founders and they'll be like, I need someone to help me. And they'll be like, well, you should talk to Walid or you should talk to Faris or, you know, you should talk to Asher. And then we'll meet them. And so that's kind of like our, our process. So Walid and Faris are in, are in Riyadh, but they're like, you know, Faris goes uh, and Walid also, they both go uh, frequently to, to Egypt. Um, and, you know, like, so we're, we're getting deal flow from, from the region. Uh, everyone has their own sort of ways. Walid is very well known, very prominent. You know, he's, he's on this podcast uh, and, and he's also like interviewed to CNBC Arabia. So like, I mean, Walid's like the man, right? So, and so we all have our own ways of getting deal flow. Now, what happens is that we bring in deal flow um, and, uh, you know, we have a, a person called uh, Omar Hamdallah. He's actually based in Cairo. He's our principal. He actually runs the investment uh, uh, process. So what happens is that when we find that this is an interesting deal, um, so we, we have uh, these daily check-ins and weekly check-ins where we'll say yes, no, yes, no, yes, no to, to deals, filtering them out. And then we'll, we'll sort of, the ones that we're interested in, we'll, we'll funnel through to Omer and then we'll take them through a, uh, a process of sort of getting more information. Omer will then engage and, and get more information from the founders in terms of, you know, their business plan and stuff. And then, so what we'll do is we'll get this initial information because this is interesting. 
and you know one partner has already talked to them maybe we'll get another partner to talk to them just to get a sense check um and then we'll write a like a sort of a very thin uh sort of a screening memo and we'll we'll read the screening memo we'll discuss it if there's consensus then we'll move it we need two out of three votes to move it to the next uh level uh of of diligence or if there isn't, then maybe we'll have a, a session with the founder because sometimes it's hard to articulate things on paper and it's easier to talk to people, especially, as I said, like a pre-seed and seed stage. So, yeah, so we do a screening memo and then from screening, then uh, if we approve it, then we'll look into sort of uh, maybe investing in the company. So we'll do more due diligence there. It takes a couple of weeks to a couple of months. It really depends because sometimes you're ready, you've built the product, you've got clear signs of product market fit uh, or early clear signs of product market fit and you've got some traction and it's easier. In other cases, you have to figure out and have a debate about what the future looks like and how that, and so that's where I'd love to say we have a formulate. I mean, we do have these processes, but we fail every single time. Uh, either we do it, uh, we, we get there earlier or later and, you know, it depends on how much it makes sense. And then we have at the investment committee, we have these open debates amongst the four of us. All four of us come from somewhat different backgrounds, but we all have been founders. We've all been operators and we've all been, you know, in global markets. So we know what, uh, you know, like what good looks like um, and, and, and we know what the problems are. And um, what is cool is sometimes I'll be very hot about a deal and then uh, Faris will throw some perspective, which will then sh- throw doubt and, and that is what I love about this. It's like you want to get people who have different perspectives into the room so that you can make the best decisions for your investors, for your LPs. And so, yeah, I, I, I think I went beyond what you'd asked for, which is like the process. But the process is you come to me, Walid, or Faris, or Omar, um, you know, or you just send an email to deals at suknaventures.com. Sorry, this is a plug. I apologize for, for being my uh, fun. Um, uh, just send us uh, your yeah, so hopefully this is helpful. And and so um, uh, you send us a deal, you somehow get into the funnel and we'll get a quick no or a quick yes if we can. Uh, sometimes we get a slow no. And the reason why we give you a slow no is not because it wasn't easy to say no quickly. And so we take time. And so like sometimes I have, we do, but when we say no, we actually meet with people. I, I've had this conversation with many founders and I have to say like, and I know this may sound really cheesy, but like, um, and you can't validate this anywhere, but I've spoken to a few founders and I can't mention their names because I said no to them. Uh, I passed on the deal, but what was interesting was like uh, several founders said to me, this is the best call I've had. And and it was so weird because this is not supposed to be a very positive call. This is a bad call because I'm telling you we're passing and I'm telling you why we're passing. And these are the issues. And they're like, well, now I have a roadmap or problems to solve, and I'm going to come back to you. And I'm like, great, let's let's do it. Um, yeah. No, I mean, uh, I I can empathize with those founders because it's always good to have concrete feedback than just a vague no or or ghosting or something like that. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, I understand the whole process. But the last step in the investment committee, do you guys take a majority kind of vote thing? after all the long discussion, or is it a consensus that everybody has to agree? No, I mean, uh, so we, we uh, so we 
believe that, you know, not everybody gets everything right all the time. We actually get nervous when we have consensus too early. So if we have three of us very excited about a deal, all of us get like spidey sense nervous. It's like, oh, what are we missing here? No, no, they, they, we, we got too excited, you know, and we need to like clear the fog of our emotions and then look at this deal. So we actually spend more time on deals where the three of us have consensus than than ones not that that only. So the, it depends on the check size. So if it's uh, three fifty to five hundred k, um, then you know two out of three, uh, two out of four votes is is what you need. Um, and if it's like uh, if you know five hundred plus to like a million dollars, then you need one hundred percent votes, which means there's a lot more arguing and and conversations going on about like convincing you of the future uh, and we find try different tactics sometimes we argued out or duke it out amongst ourselves when i say argue it's like this is healthy we're all friends right so and we're mature we're all in our sadly mid to late 40s so you know we, we have like good conversations and sometimes we'll say you know what maybe i'm not the best to convince you uh we'll bring the founder in and the founder will pitch and you know it's a yes or no so it really depends on the thresholds um and then we're we're trialing we're we're pivoting we're trying different things we're open to trying different things so right now we're we're actively thinking about whether we want to do scout type uh, deals which are like smaller checks where just one gp sort of has conviction and and they'll go for it but um we need to think about what the risks are um you know with, with that so but so yeah, so I guess I, I hope I answered your question there. But no, you, we, you did absolutely. Yeah, but I mean, in an ideal world, like even if I have the authority to write a check on my own, and and sometimes if you have very very strong conviction, you know, those are the best sometimes where nobody else sees this future but you. And sometimes you just need to trust your gut. And and I, I struggle with this, but I you know like, uh, I think those are kind of interesting. But we do think that. Sometimes it helps to have, you know, a second vote um, where even if we're not 100% convinced, we will say, well, these are the things that I believe to be true, but this, these are the risks that I see. And that's also very helpful because then what happens is that let's just say I have conviction on this deal. I will take these risk factors from uh, Farish or Walid, for example, or Marvin, and I will go, I have a... I, I now have a target to go and de-risk, right? And so, that's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. And it's wonderful that you could run this process so quickly. All right. So, I want to move back a little in time. Uh, back in 2018, you were 500 and you were at an event at, in Madrid. And you somebody quoted you as saying, we look for assholes to invest in. So, can you tell me more about that? Elaborate more, and do you do you still think that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, at IE Business School event. Yeah, how did you find that? Um, uh, so, yeah, what did I say exactly? Uh, if you could, uh, we we look for a holes to invest in. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, that was. Uh, yeah, I'm not proud of of of, of that. So actually. Um, so I, I have a, okay, so I, do I still believe this? So I used to have this view and I have, as I get older and hopefully wiser, I have a different perspective on, um, on, on, on terminology and language that we use and also on 
on how I view the world. And um, so, you know, a-holes, assholes. I don't know if I can swear on, on, on your well, podcast. I already did, so. <laughs> so. So I used to have this, um, yeah, I, and I think that's an unfortunate sort of term that is actually something that I don't believe in. So I, for the longest time, have this policy that my friends know, which is called a no-asshole policy. And, um, and so what that means is that I don't want to engage with people that I perceive to be assholes. And, and I have this no asshole policy with everything. People I do business with, I don't care how much money I could make here. Um, if, but I think that that was unfair of me to label people as assholes. because, And at the same time, sometimes I felt I am an asshole. And, and I can tell you that there's plenty of people out there who think of me as an asshole, and I don't think that they're wrong because when I was with them and in the interactions we had, I think I may have been an asshole. A lot of people think I'm a nice person. Um, I actually don't think I'm a nice person either. I think I'm a product of my conditioning, and you know, your product of your your conditioning as you grow and, and you develop and, and you you know sort of uh, you condition uh, you get conditioned. You have this requirement for dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. And, you know, you have a specific formula that you have. Like, so, like, everyone has their own addiction to their dose. Um, and it's a special uh, sort of, you know, uh, a formulation. And, yeah, and so I had my uh, dose. Um, and, and that dose led me to help people because that gave me... So I like to help people and I like to be helpful. Um, and sometimes when I'm helpful, I'm telling people with radical candor uh, what I truly believe. And also I am quite passionate. When I'm talking about something, I really get very passionate. And sometimes my passion and my radical candor um, may lead people to believe that I'm an asshole. And, and the reason I say this is because there have been times when my wife has walked into my study when I'm talking to somebody and she's like, honey, what are you doing? Like, how can you talk to this person this way? And I'm like, no, this is actually a friend, a founder friend that I'm talking to. And she's like, really? Because it sounded like you hate this person. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the founder's like laughing and I'm laughing and I'm like embarrassed. Anyway, sorry, I, I didn't answer your question, but like I, I wanted to like to set the context of, of, of my, my perspective on, on of dose and, 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 and how how we behave and, and how we need to be conscious about how we behave. And, and so then getting to like that no asshole policy, I started thinking, do you know, I met people that at this point in time with me, like there's so many environmental factors that lead to them behaving in a particular way. God knows what's going on in your life. What's, God knows what's going on in my life today. Uh, what happened? And, and you know, there's so many things that are going on. So I think everyone has the ability to be an asshole at some point in their life. And I think that that was unfair of me to call people assholes, yes or no, right? But I have a, I have a, I've pivoted my, my theory now to, 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 uh, uh, to another sort of uh, belief, which is everyone has their own frequency, right? You have your frequency, I have my frequency. Maybe I think you and I, based on our previous conversations, I feel like we have complementary frequencies. And so my view is you should find people that are on compatible frequencies 
and work with people that are on compatible frequencies. And if you come across people that are incompatible uh, to your frequency, that's okay. Help them get to people that are on compatible frequencies. Because when, and, and now that I do this, what's interesting is that the people that are on incompatible frequencies to mine tend to be more helpful to me than people who are on compatible frequencies, which is so interesting. Like, you know, I was, I was introduced to so many interesting people by people who were on incompatible frequencies. And the reason why they introduced me to those people was because they appreciated my radical candor and my help and support, and they wanted to return them. And so they were not as transactional as I thought. You know, some people believe in transactions and transactions are monetary or equity based, but sometimes these transactions can be in different forms. And so I guess my point is like, I'm, I'm non-transactional. And sometimes I come across people that are very transactional. And I think that even then I find that actually even transactional people um, can bring value. So I guess my point is less hate and more acceptance and, and, and just like understanding people and their frequencies. That's just uh, one thing I will say. And then uh, when you do that, then you find that sometimes you're even open to investing in somebody who is an incompatible frequency. And the reason why is because it gives you something, a window to an environment or an opportunity that you would never have been able to see unless you had been able to engage with their frequency and see through them. I don't know if I made sense. It's like a lot of psychobabble. No, yeah. <laughs> And, and, and I think, you know, you, you can only be open to these people who are at a different frequency when, when you're conscious of this, you know, fact yeah. that, that people can yeah. be compatible or incompatible. And this person is, is not, but, but their difference is something that could, you know, introduce me to something new. And, yeah. I, and I, I might say that there is some truth to what you said back in 2018. If, if you kind of change assholes for contrarians, you know, people who are willing to say no to what yeah. the mainstream is saying or, or go uh, against what, you know, most strongly held beliefs are and stuff like that. People who have that ability or tendency of independent thought are probably more yeah. likely to be good founders. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, yeah. So thank you uh, for clarifying that. So like, I, I guess what I would say is like, what was I trying to do in at IE uh, at the time? I was meeting all these MBA graduates and what I was trying to do was A, using bad language to shock them yeah, because yeah. you kind of need to shock them and sort of unsettle them and take them out of their comfort zone. So that's one thing that I was doing. And what the other thing I was doing was saying, and maybe poor choice of words, but what it's really saying was if you have a belief and you're the only person that has that belief, that's okay. And if it takes whatever emotion, if it takes like the most negative emotion that you can think of, like being an asshole, I'm not saying that I, I, said, I recommend that you do that, but my point was even because these people were nice people. So my point was, if it means that you will have to be an asshole, then be an asshole and go and prove everyone wrong. But obviously there are better ways to do it. But there was, I, I, sometimes I take these extreme uh, cases to kind of like make a point. Um, Make make the point, and that was the point that I was making. Because you know, Madrid, like Span Spanish people are so nice and they're, they're so friendly, so they were shocked uh, at at all of this. But I think the point was, was yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I also saw a video of you speaking very highly of the SaaS model, and you know, like talking about it as like almost an optimal 
business model. Can, can you tell me more about that and why you think that and, and how you think through it? So, um, you know, I mean, so my beliefs are, so I'm a product of my conditioning. And, you know, if I think about my professional conditioning, you know, in the late 98, 99, early 2000s, that's how I got my, my sort of start. I had no money. I was relying on credit cards um, that I <laughs> had, and I was I was living, and I had nothing, no network, no money, nada, and um, and so I remember trying to, and all I had was skills. I could build JSP Java server pages, applications using JSP and XML, J2E or whatever uh, you know they used to call it in those days. Um, that's all I had. And this ability to talk to people and empathize with people. So be empathetic, put my ability to put myself in their shoes, to understand the world and their problems through their eyes so that I could then build a solution for them. But what I realized was like, if I were to build a software for them, that would be like it. And then I would spend another six months building a relationship and then selling another one. And this is unsustainable because I need to pay the bills. And so I guess what I'm saying is that for me to convert my like not get a job first of all and be independent i needed sustainable income and the only way i could figure out how to do that is something that i used to call pay as you use which is i'll build it i'll put it on a website you go there you log in you use it it's available anytime you want it you pay me when you use it Obviously, I was lying because I, it wasn't pay as you use. They were signing five-year contracts. So, but they would sign, you know, like uh, multi-year contracts for the access to this solution. And what that meant was that very quickly I got to like $100,000 in revenue, which is recurring annually. And the only thing stopping me from scaling this up was my time and my lack of resources because in order to go beyond that i needed to hire people for that i needed more capital and and i didn't know how to do that so but what was interesting was that you know 10 15 years later when i was in at Tislat and i was like this you know executive and and i i forgot about that application and i kind of like shared it with somebody else and i said you know you, you can take over and we kind of came up with an exit kind of uh, thing um, what was interesting, 10, 15 years later, the customers were still there. Now the product had evolved. Uh, the guy who took over, you know, added more features and, and it did other things. But they were still there every year. And so the beauty of that, you know, um, subscription-based uh, software, I just, it solved a problem for me. So I guess what I'm saying is that I think when you talk to smarter investors than myself, I think they will give you a much better answer. All I can say is that I fell in love with this model because it was I had a necessity and it solved my problem. And then when I think about um, uh, you know SaaS, it's it truly is. I mean, I know it's not pay as you use, but it is in the sense that it is available when you need it, whenever you need it. How you know it is it is. That is what it is. And so if you want to deliver software to your customers, you know, one of the most efficient ways to do that is online over the internet, which is now great. And 
and you know like be available 24 7 and and so i guess the point is like I, I just find that you know i tried doing consumer investing i tried doing e-commerce and all sorts of other things and i'm terrible at it and i never really understood it the one thing i can always figure out and understand is is you know SaaS models but then at the same time you know what's interesting today is that you know i'm an enterprise software person so like enterprise SaaS. um but interesting you know with the growth in smes um you know you had b2b SaaS, and now you have consumer SaaS. so now i am a subscriber to so many different um you know a- applications that are subscription based and like Calendly and, and Zoom and, and all sorts of applications. So, you know, consumer SaaS. So it's just like the expansion and it makes a lot of sense because, you know, if you like, obviously you you take your time to, to make that decision, but when you do and then it's available, um, predictable revenues. And, you know, as an investor, why do I like it? For all the obvious reasons, predictable revenues, sticky, um, and, you know, it allows you to think. So one of the problems, I guess, is that, you know, when, 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 you're, when you're in chaos, you know, the state of flux and you're trying to figure things out, you can't think clearly. I mean, there are some people who are very good at thinking through chaos and that's cool, but it's still difficult, right? And I think what the SaaS model allows you to do is to get early customers, get that step and then sort of you know like venture is not like you know going into vegas and throwing at some chips and and you're a millionaire and you or winning the lottery that's not venture like building a company building a business is like one step at a time and and what SaaS does model allows you to build and then and then go to the next head and you just accumulate going and then but then what it's methodical but then what it allows you to do is allow you to build a team that can then continue to do that methodically. And so you can then take stock and you have time to make the right decisions, strategic decisions around product, around go to market, around so many things. Um, uh, so, you know, it, I, I just like that is an environment that's very comfortable for people like me. Uh, now, there are people who are amazing, are suboptimal in a SaaS environment and they are like supermen or superwomen in other environments. It's just, but this is my wheelhouse, I guess. Viewpoint, yeah, got it. Okay, I mean, going now <clears throat> to the, you know, to the M&A, the mergers and acquisitions uh, world, and you manage this process for uh, Ed Salat, which is a huge, I think $80 billion company or something like that. Um, how, how does, a company like that approach M&A, how, how does it think about it? How does it fit into its overall strategy? Um, so I can talk about the time when I was there. And I think, you know, I, I can't say what their strategy is today. And I wouldn't like to. Um, I, I mean, I, I know, uh, you know, uh, them uh, and, and their friends. And, and you know, so I, I do know the strategy and I understand it. But I wouldn't like to talk about it because it's not... Their current strategy is not what I'm executing. I, I can talk to you about sort of, you know, when I was there and, and so what the strategy was. So, um, you know, like the, the, what is the genesis of the, uh, maybe I can tell you a little bit about the genesis of the uh, M&A department and Etisat International and how that came about. And how it came about was, um, you know, the UAE uh, 
um, government, the regulator, um, was contemplating opening up the market to competition. And and Etislat, uh, until that point, was an incumbent uh, operator. And um, so there was this idea that there will be competition in your local market. And so from Etislat's perspective, you know, what do you do now? Do you then defend your uh, position in your local market? Or if your local market's uh, revenues and, and profitability is at risk, do you consider diversification? And so the decision that the board made was to diversify um, sources of, of, of revenue. So that is was was the genesis of it. Um, and, and there are many reasons for, for having M&A strategies, but, but that was the genesis of Etislot's um, uh, sort of M&A expansion strategy. And so that's when I was sort of uh, brought in. So if you remember like 2006 and then do a launched, you know, it's like uh, shortly thereafter, it was a couple of years later, but it was, we, we thought, okay, we're going to get ahead of it. And that is why when the thought process started, it was like, well, it may not happen next year or year after. I mean, it's not up to us, but what was smart about Chairman Imran, who was, who was the chairman and CEO of Evetislat when I joined, um, he was a visionary and, and he, you know, he, a fascinating uh, person, human being, I, I, you know, he's just still, I, I, I hang out with him and, and, and still learn from him. So he was a visionary who, basically worked up the ranks from an engineer uh, to, to, to becoming CEO and, and then eventually chairman wow. uh, of the company. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he's actually written a book, which uh, I would encourage you to sort of uh, check out if you're interested in learning, you know, the, the journey and, and the rationale yeah. for, for that whole thing. What is it called? It's, it's fantastic. Um, I don't remember, the, remember the title, but I will plug it later, actually. Uh, yeah, I have a, and I, I'll you know, put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, thanks. So, um, so anyway, so he, um, him, he built a team around him. So, you know, no man is an island. So he built a team and that team, um, his view was to basically start thinking about how do we diversify and where do we diversify? So, uh, there were, uh, there was Europe, Asia, Middle East, and Africa. And so what, what we did was we built two MA teams and I joined the Europe and, uh, Asia, uh, team. And, and there was this Middle East and Africa team. And uh, the idea there was, let's go and look for growth opportunities in markets that are also similarly opening up to competition, that are issuing licenses. And, and we will go there and, and we will sort of execute. So, you know, we did that in Egypt, for example. We did that in Saudi Arabia, in Mobile, uh, and, and, you know, in the Middle East markets. And we found that we did actually very well in, in Middle Eastern markets. And we're an engineering-driven company, uh, so you know, like we we were able to roll out networks rapidly, provide good quality of service, and and sort of uh, go out into the market and and customize the product. So, and I think that strategy generally worked well. Um, as we evolved as a company, we found that we had maybe spread too thin because we had you know operations you know in all the way in Indonesia, for example, which is very far away if you think about it so you know i mean like on the one hand you're buying in you're investing in a company um in indonesia or in tanzania but you know like these companies are run by teams management teams and then they have boards and then they're you know and and you're they're part of the whole family but one of the challenges was you have fires you have problems and when you have problems you have to put up fires and 
there are time zone differences. Um, so by the time you get the message and then, you know, weekend differences and all of that. And then on top of it, how long does it take you to mobilize a team and fly over there? And if it's like an eight hour flight. And so like, it's like, this is very complex to manage. And so um, now obviously you can manage it and it is possible to manage it. And we, I think we, we tried to do the best we could. But my point is like, there's a lot of challenges there. And I think that that's what happened where we grew very quickly we did a lot of M&A expansion and then we kind of started to rethink whether we were ready for this. So, you know, we we grew into a teenager very quickly, but we're surrounded by adults and maybe we're not ready to be an adult yet. Because it takes time to to, to develop the skills and, and the core competencies. The, the awkward period of, of teenage. That's it, yeah. And so that, that was... Um, that was the uh, rationale for my last deal at Etisalat, which was Moroctel, uh, Moroc Telecom, which was um, we had expanded into many different markets. And so my view was, uh, and, and this is like what we had pitched to, to, the, to the board, which was that we have, uh, you know, we're a Middle Eastern company. We're, uh, you know, based in uh, the UAE. Uh, which is a multicultural place. And, and so, you know, that's great because that allows us and enables us to sort of be able to go into any sort of culture in any market because we're so multicultural. Um, but at the same time, there are some cultures that we uh, know and understand better and can manage better. And there are others that maybe we're not so optimally, uh, you know, placed. And so, for example, we had a West African portfolio, which was French, French speaking, so Francophone. And so there was like a cultural differences, language differences, and it was complex. And so there, my hypothesis was uh, that, you know, Moroc Telecom was a Francophone, it's a Moroc- Moroccan company, uh, Francophone company uh, that had expansions for regional expansion. And we own like seven, eight assets. So, we, you know, we have the largest portfolio in there, but we're not maybe the best owners. And having coming to that realization that we're maybe not the best owners, but at the same time, we like these assets and we like these countries. So what we did is we basically, uh, and then Moroc Telecom was being uh, sold by Vivendi. Vivendi was selling at stake. And so we participated in that process. And the pitch was, let me acquire a controlling stake in Moroc Telecom. So we would expo- get exposure. And Moroc Telecom has these expansion ambitions how about we sell them our francophone assets? So they are the best owner for those assets. So it's like a win-win-win. You know, we uh, own an asset that is a great asset. It's like an established company, cash flows, and 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 you know, you know, great financial investment. But also someone that has the capabilities to uh, and actually wants to do what we are struggling to do. And so that's kind of like in the end. And so it was a very complex transaction because we acquired the stake first and then we sold our uh, assets in. But I'm very proud of of, of that um, sort of deal. Um, And then so I guess the the point and I guess a couple of years later that led to that was where there was a deal that I had done in Indonesia where we had invested in a company uh, in Indonesia, a telecom operator. Uh, and that we were looking to expand and uh, increase our ownership. And then we found that the owners were actually very happy with the growth in Indonesia and and the growth in, in, um, uh, in, in, and they had 
also ambitions to sort of, you know, become uh, a bigger group themselves. So we thought, okay, we're, we're a minority position there. Now we could have just stayed as a minority position, but it was a listed company. And so here again, sometimes you have to take a step back. And so um, what we did in Indonesia was I took a step back and I started talking to, um, so this is uh, 2012. So 2012, I took a step back. So, you know, we had the financial crisis in 2008. And uh, sometimes you need to take a step back to make a micro decision in a particular country. And that's kind of like what I did. So I, I started talking to investment bankers and, uh, you know, globally trying to understand the macro environment. So to understand, okay, so what's happening now with financial? Uh, so so the whole financial services industry and globally there was this massive sort of dis- upheaval, like, upheaval that that took place. Um, and and now, like, where are we? So I was taking stock, and what I found was that European and American markets were starting to recover. And when I looked at the Indonesian stock market, which is an emerging market, and so the Asian financial crisis is important to understand because I remembered the Asian financial crisis because I was my suppliers were Asian and they could no longer give me the credit terms that I needed uh, because of the crisis that was going on there. What I realized was that fund capital had flown to, because the Asian financial uh, crisis happened in 97, so they had, they weren't um, as exposed to the financial crisis relative to other markets. And so what happened is capital then flowed into uh, these Asian markets. That led to an inflation in asset prices in, in Asia. And so my view was that there's, it's only a matter of time that this, uh, capital will now go back because the cost of capital and the risk is higher in these markets. So uh, at some point, people want to go back to, you know, like lower risk uh, Europe and, and US. And so, um, you know, like that is actually the deal that I'm most proud of. It's not as big as the $5 billion uh, uh, Maroctel deal, but this deal is I'm very proud of because I learned so much about macroeconomics, about fund flows, about uh, sentiment and 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 how we're all interconnected and interrelated. So the Indonesian stock market was riding high. Our stake was worth t- double what it was worth when we had invested, and only a couple of years later. So we sold our uh, stake uh, in you know into the market. And what's interesting is that if you look today, this is now almost. 10 years, more than 10 years later, uh, that was an all-time high for the stock market and for the share price for XL Asiata. Mm, Terrific timing. Yeah, I mean, like, there was a lot of uh, luck involved there. Uh, But yes, uh, perfect timing. So, you know, that was was a great story for me. Uh, I learned a lot about, uh, you know, how how the world works. Sorry, I, I... a rabbit hole around deals. It's easier for me to talk about deals than strategy, but uh, ask me please other questions. Oh, and, and I think it's very relevant for, for our time right now because, you, you know, you, you, there's this change of, there's this major change from zero interest rate kind of regimes in the West to higher interest rates. And that is also going to, and it's already affecting the, um, the capital flows 
globally yeah. and, and pointing them, you know, more towards the U.S., etc., where it's very safe. You can make a pretty good profit. And uh, and so that, that, I mean, people need to put that in mind when they're planning, especially expansion and all that. So, I mean, it's a great insight with a, with a concrete example. And so for the, but, but moving on from that to the like startups area, <clears throat> did you at, at Salat ever like acquire uh, startups or, and, and if, if so, can you tell us like a story of how that happened and how it was initiated? So uh, we didn't um, and, and uh, weren't able to, uh, so, um, we weren't able to, and that's part of the reason why I felt like, um, you know, I, I wanted to sort of move on because we were, uh, you know, I, I'll give you an example. So, you know, we were early and this is very natural, not just for Etisalat, for any corporate, this is a very natural thing. So there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, you have to understand it and you have to accept it. And so we were new to venture and we were learning venture. We were learning that process. And the best way to learn is to invest in professionals and then learn with them. And the problem that we faced was that we weren't able to work with the best uh, at the time. We didn't have access to, uh, to, to those uh, players so that we could learn from them. And we tried to sort of figure out where can we, because ultimately we work for our shareholders. I work for my shareholders and the shareholders need a return. Otherwise, I might as well provide this capital back to them in dividends, right? So when I say I, I mean like the, the management team, of course. Um, so the idea was, can we provide higher returns by investing this capital uh, and learning and so strategic? So it's very challenging in a corporate to invest because you're looking for financial returns and strategic returns. Why? Because financial returns, the investor can do themselves. So what you need to provide is more than financial returns. So what, why, why, we, why we talk about things like strategic returns, this is not, uh, this is not uh, a discount to returns. No, what it means is I need to invest in you and I need to provide my value add, which is that strategic thing so that I can provide a higher return through my efforts. Because if I cannot provide a return through my efforts, then I should not be in making this investment. I should be providing this capital back to my shareholders so that they can then make that investment. Does that make sense to you? So as a corporate development uh, uh, or a function, our job is not to invest. Our job is to invest in, and, and, and do more than what they can do themselves, which is why it's so hard to invest in funds and be passive. The idea was like, no, you invest in funds so you learn. And you learn and then you spot co-investment opportunities that you can then do. So we we got pretty close to doing several opportunity investments that we weren't able to take across the line. I'll give you an example. We invested in Imina and we invested in Moroctel and I did these two deals in parallel. Moroc Telecom, the deal, very complex deal, $5 billion deal, took 18 months. In parallel, Imina, which was like a very small investment in, in, in comparison, um, also took months. So, you know, we weren't configured at the time to, because the same investment committee uh, of the board was making decisions that are fundamentally changing the landscape of the organization and this small thing that is so we weren't and we were it was too early so sadly we didn't but there were some very interesting opportunities that um 
I saw that I was very excited about doing. We weren't able to close, but then that those ended up actually being acquired and being very successful outcomes. And so I kind of built on an Excel kind of like a an anti-portfolio where I wanted to, but it would get across the line. And I found that actually my anti-portfolio was doing really, really well. And that is what I started to think about. I thought, maybe, maybe I've got something here. Maybe I've got a lens and I need to figure it out myself. And that's when I sort of left um, and sort of went into pure venture. Uh, but I, I know that, you know, Etisalat has now, um, you know, now they're mature enough. And the timing also, by the way, uh, matters. The, the timing is right. Uh, so, you know, they've invested in, um, uh, you know, and acquired even some companies. And I think it's very important and very healthy for the ecosystem for corporates to get involved, to invest directly and also to acquire uh, companies uh, in the ecosystem. Now, it's not to say that we didn't do corporate venture capital opportunities. So I was on the I was the chairman of the investment committee of Imina and I was on the board of Imina. And through Imina, we were able to play. So I, I with Imina made investments in Selene Car, for example. So Selene Car is a company that when we saw Saigon, the founder, he basically had a PowerPoint presentation and we invested a million dollars into that company and, uh, you know, in a PowerPoint. And I didn't believe his numbers. And, you know, like I say this to founders, no plan ever goes according to plan. And I don't mean that you're not going to achieve your numbers. It means that it will never go according to plan. And it's true also of Saigon. So Saigon, for example, within 18 months. So he, I didn't believe his numbers. I think that I did not believe that he was going to be able to achieve the numbers that he did. 18 months later, he had not achieved the numbers that he had projected. He had overshot and he was already EBITDA positive. <laughs> Sorry, not EBITDA positive, EBITDA break-even within 18 months. So he had exceeded his own expectations that I did not believe. So my point is, nobody knows. You know, everybody thinks they know and everybody thinks they're smart, but the reality is nobody knows uh, until you go and you do it. And so like, um, uh, so the, I, I learned a lot about investing and and uh, there were deals that I saw, for example, like Curry passed my, uh, my, uh, my desk. And, uh, um, you know, I learned another valuable lesson there. So, you know, we used to spend millions and millions and millions a year on consultants, including McKinsey and, you know, all these others. And I was a little bit jaded uh, about uh, strategy consultants at the time because we were spending a lot of money. But I remember when the investment strategy or the corporate strategy or whatever strategy was being built, I would have the McKinsey partner come ask me what my strategy was and I'd already done the work and it was all there and it was pitched. But what they would do is they would take my work and then they would basically make it pretty with their logo and they would convert my 25 slides to 65 slides. And I mean, they, they do add value in the sense that I didn't have access to the information or, or whatever the, uh, the, the, the team that they have that's able to, you know, provide the data to support my strategy. And, um, but yeah, so I passed on because they were both McKinsey and, um, and so I was like, well, so that was one, but the other thing was also something else, which was I'd seen strategy consultants who had never had any operational experience. And so they were telling me or telling people that were operational about things that 
they didn't even know how to do, right? So like you're telling me how to ride a bike, but you've never actually ridden a bike. You know theoretically how to ride a bike, but you haven't actually done it yourself. So, you know, like how should I value your um, perspective? There's some valuable perspectives that management consultants provide, but, you know, I was thinking, and that was a hypothesis that I had and a, or a bias that I had that was, I think, incorrect. And so I passed and I passed for many reasons. I was lazy also. I had my bias and I was also lazy because I didn't even bother to look into their backgrounds. And when I looked into their backgrounds, I found that actually they went to Stanford and then after, or straight out of Stanford, they actually started, they had a startup that didn't go anywhere. And then they had all these student loans and a startup that didn't work out. And so they needed a job. And the smartest thing that they could have done, which they did, was join McKinsey because um, it expand, gave them comp, but also uh, gave them access to networks and, and, uh, and, and a learning curve. And so if I had not been so lazy, I would have probably said, oh, okay, these guys actually do have some insights and they are actually have operational perspectives. And so they could actually build a company. I looked at a lot of strategy consultants coming out of McKinsey or uh, Bain or whatever, building companies, and they would spend as much money as a corporate would to validate the same idea, which made no sense. Why should I do that? And so I guess, and, and I actually, by the way, I, I, I shared a cab with Mudassar once and I, I kind of sheepishly told him that, um, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, we were we were in FII and we 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 were sh- we shared a like a, a ride uh, together and and I said to him like yeah dude like <laughs> meeting you the first time but I'm like I'm the dummy that uh, people used to tell you about that uh, <laughs> you know passed on you because you're, you're the uh, uh, yeah anyway <laughs> but I, I you learn a lot yeah, because, uh, you live and you learn so I mean yeah yeah one of the lessons I'm thinking of I mean as a startup founder one of the ways. Yeah at some point a startup exits is through an acquisition so if you feel i mean this perspective is very important for for startup founders that if you want to be acquired then it's not just about the like roi because you can get roi many ways as a as a corporate but it's really about strategic fit and and how this corporate can really like one plus one is equal to much more than two in this specific case and that you need to tell this story and and give this narrative for this acquisition to come off correctly as well as of course be lucky and have the right timing and not have joined McKinsey you yeah. know, things like that <laughs> so I, I'm kind of I'm, I'm I'm keen to dive into your time at 500 as well but before I do that there's yeah. something I just have to ask you which is I mean you're advising uh, a fund that was co-founded by Robert Downey Jr. So, I mean, what is that like? What, what's he like and how did that come about? Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a pretty cool story. That was the end of part one of this episode. If you'd like to find out what Asher experienced as he advised Robert Downey Jr.'s fund and much, much more, listen to part two, which comes out next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Startups Arabia podcast. If there was something you really liked about what the guests said today, reach out to them on social media and tell them what you liked. And of course, if you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? You don't want to miss any of our great upcoming episodes. Also, please rate us and give us comments on our social media accounts so that we know how to improve. And also tell us what you like. We don't mind hearing that either. 
Until next time, this was your host, Adi's Whale.